Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be examining the legacy of the great mystic artist and poet William Blake, who lived in London in the 18th and early 19th centuries. My guest today is my good friend James Tunney, an Irish barrister who has lectured all over the world. He is the author of many books, including most recently, Human Entrance to Transhumanism, Machine Merger and the End of Humanity. He's also written two dystopian novels, Blue Lies September and Ireland, I Don't Recognize Who She Is. His other books include Tech Bondage, Slavery of the Human Spirit, Empire of Scientism, The Dispiriting Conspiracy and Inevitable Tyranny of Scientocracy, as well as two books about mysticism, The Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution, and The Mystery of the Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism. James lives in Gothenburg, Sweden, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, James. Once again, a great pleasure to be with you. And great to see you, Jeff. Uh, thank you very much. It feels a bit like bungee jumping the topic we're going to do today. Well, William Blake is such a fascinating character. I regard him as, as one of the great artists and mystics of his era, and, and yet I know some of his contemporaries thought he was insane. Yes, when he had an exhibition, his one solo exhibition in 1809, and he didn't sell anything, of course, which is always a good a sign of quality, but he got one review which said, that he was a lunatic, but because he was inoffensive, he, he, he didn't have to be confined. Uh, that's fine. I can understand it in that era, but unfortunately today, still, Jeff, still there's a there's a great uh, pathology about William Blake, which is, is is very unfair. And still, even with the best biographers, they're fishing around for labels all the time, and the list of labels about him is growing. You know, from schizophrenia, paranoia, uh, depression, manic depression, uh, hyperfantasia, and the list is growing now with new terms. So I find that a bit depressing, uh, and it's um, I, I would I can understand where people can come to that conclusion, but it's sad that they're still calling him, him crazy. Well, I think it's fair to say that of all of the visual artists of that era, the early 19th century, late 18th century, there were many, many artists. And Blake is probably remembered more than most of them, for sure. He's remembered. It's quite remarkable how he's remembered, because he's remembered by a whole range of people. He's remembered in particular by poets. And not only is he remembered by them, but a number of them say that they have heard him talking to them. For example, Allen Ginsberg had a, an experience which a lot of psychiatrists reject and, 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 and don't accept. But he, he said he heard William Blake talking to him, and it was all the characteristics of a mystical experience. I think Michael McClure had a similar experience. So as well as the poets having a direct influence, a lot of musicians uh, are, have been influenced by Blake or by the spirit of Blake because he described himself as a musician as well in the sense that he certainly sung the songs. So we see a, a number of, of musicians um, um, uh, as well as the poets, Patti Smith and, and those who, who are uh, have a great influence uh, of William Blake and of course Jim Morrison and the Doors and their name came via Aldous Huxley uh, back to a, a statement by William Blake about the cleansing of the doors of perception. So there's a continuity um, for poets, for musicians, uh, for writers, 
Um, there's also the Japanese writer Kasaburo, who, who won the Nobel Prize, was influenced by Blake. It's a universal, a universal impact. So his influence is quite remarkable across, across a whole range of domains. So his art, his visual images have to be seen in relationship with his text and his philosophy. And for me, they're all subsumed under his mystical vision. Well, that quote you mentioned, I think it goes, when the doors of perception are cleansed, we will see everything as it truly is, infinite. Correct. Well done, yes. And the, this, this was a very important concept for him. That, and it, it's perhaps it's useful to explain at, at, this con uh, at, this, at the start of this juncture what he, he was talking about. It's not as simple as, as people think. It's not about taking some psychedelics and moving into a different domain, although that may work for some people. But the doors of perception were where you came to after a long a long journey uh, whereby you began to understand yourself, your psyche, your ego, and you began to transcend that. And to a certain extent, he was quite influenced by the work of people like Thomas Taylor uh, and people who had studied the mystery religions. In, uh, and they were more connected to the mystery religions in a, in a way than contemporary society. So they understood about all the, the other dimensions to the mystery religions. And that's reflected in, in his work. He was, he was very cosmopolitan. People forget that in London at that era, there was a lot of interest, a lot of diversity. There was, there was, there was influence from the East, from, from India, from China. Uh, there was the f translations at that stage of, of sacred texts from India. So he was familiar with a, a more diverse range of influences than people might think, as well as the magical, uh, magical influence. You mentioned Thomas Taylor, and I think it's worth mentioning to our viewers that he was one of the great translators of the works of Plato. Yes, yeah, so, so he had a big influence on trying to look back at uh, Plato and Neoplatonism, and also to, to establish the connection with the mystery religions, and this was a very important element of a London kind of culture, the esoteric culture. It's very close to the various groups that were operating uh, in the United Kingdom. Now, London was a very important place at that time to, to think about. We're talking about the period, revolutionary period, revolution in the United States, revolution uh, in France, uh, war with France, the, the advent of, of Napoleon later on. And so it's a time of conspiracy, where the government is seeing conspiracy everywhere. It believes it's going to be invaded. There was a, a period of uh, the pendulum swung, uh, a period of political repression. There was people wearing red hats, that sounds familiar, to support the revolutionaries uh, in France. They believed there was going to be revolution in Britain. People were tried very easily for sedition. So it, it was a very interesting period. But before that, or around that at the same time, we had had Swedenborg, and we had a whole range of people. It was an influence from the esoteric community in Sweden, which was in influential, people like Norden Cold, for example. And uh, we also had exploration in the various Protestant sects. So, for example, the Moravians that were linked with his mother had a very kind of open view, influenced by people like Zinzendorf, an open view towards the body and to sexuality. So there was very strong erotic themes that people may not normally associate with Protestantism, and a, a very different view of the body and of the body of Christ and of the, of, of the sex magic, for example. People forget that Swedenborg was associated, or according to the reports, with explorations in the mystical significance of the Hebrew letters and how they related to, uh, to sex and the different positions, and, and they were used in the, with breeding techniques to achieve altered states. Now, there are eras of exploration that people associate more with, with uh, California and the hippie movement. And we also have Coleridge there as well, experimenting with drugs. So we had a kind of a golden period of exploration of, of spiritual traditions, uh, including many secret societies as well. And in, a, in, in London at the time, people would be hearing bits and different debates and different discourses. So it was, a, it was a lot more cosmopolitan than people think. 
I think it's worth mentioning for our viewers that the painting behind you is a portrait that you created of Blake, part of a series. I just thought it was appropriate. Um, I did a series of Blake. It's a kind of a traditional theme. It's in a way, it's almost the crucifixion is a traditional theme that artists uh, come come up against or, or use. Um, and also in relation to Blake, it, it, he's he made a life mask, or there was a life mask made of him, not a death mask. And many artists, for example, Francis Bacon, have been inspired by that because, again, of the inspirational power. And in many senses, uh, th there's a recognition that the individual themselves has power and their work has power. He's been described by uh, the poet Kathleen Rain, who was very interested in the poetic connection and the symbolic connection, the symbols in uh, his work. Uh, and she calls him a mystagogue, meaning an initiator into mystical uh, journeys. And I believe that he can have that effect, as Allen Ginsberg said. So sometimes the contemplation of figures and then the investigation of the work brings us in some way closer to the spirit of it. Well, it makes sense to me that Blake would communicate from the other side to sensitive people like Allen Ginsberg because he himself during his own lifetime felt that he was in regular ongoing communication with his younger brother who predeceased him. Uh, his younger bro brother Robert, yes. and. Uh, he lived with Robert at the time he died quite young and Robert was being trained by him to be an artist and in the printing context as well. And he nursed him for uh, a couple of weeks before he died. And he describes, he didn't, I think he didn't sleep much in that, year, in that period. And, and he really loved his brother. And he describes his brother's spirit rising out of the body when he dies and clapping as he goes into the next dimension. Uh, and that was 1787, but that wasn't the end of it because Robert never went away from him. And he used a notebook that Robert had, had for significant ideas himself. And of course, he says that Robert gave him the secret of his relief etching, which was the great technical innovation that he made, uh, a system whereby he used copper plates uh, and with a combination of acid and, and masking fluid would write backwards on copper plates and then print the plates on a roller and was able therefore to mix text and uh, uh, image in a way that would have been seen in the medieval uh, manuscripts. So he said he got that from his brother. He also said that most of his work he got from other beings. Uh, he says that in relation to Milton and there's some suggestion that there were beings which may be similar to what we would call extraterrestrial in some senses. There is a picture called The Man Who Taught Blake Painting from a description. It was by another, uh, it was a drawing by another painter that was in a circle of younger painters around him. And this figure has a kind of third, uh, clearly has a third eye in the picture. And Blake, the, the, the implication is that Blake was taught painting by this figure. So all through his life, his technique, his works, he, he, he claimed they came from the spiritual dimension. He saw God appearing at the window to him when he was four. Between the ages of eight and ten, he saw angels in a tree in Peckham Rye in London. Most of his life was spent in London, apart from three years in, in, in a place called Felpham in Surrey, in the south coast. But he, he saw uh, all the, the archangels. He saw all the great figures in literature. They appeared to him. They came to him. Now, there's very few writers, even writers that love him, that believe that he's telling the truth. They believe that he sees or these are real apparitions in some sense. They believe that when he's talking about imagination, he's talking about fantasy. But he didn't see it in those terms. And he was also, he's distinguished as well between kind of mere spirits and the higher element of the human, because he taught that communing with mere spirits was a kind of lower level activity. So there's, there's, there's some gradations in his, his, his perception of how one interacted with the spirits. Uh, but he saw them uh, all around him. And on his deathbed, he could see the spirits coming as in that classic journey as, as described by, by Peter Fenwick and other and, and classic deathbed context very joyfully going into the next world but he he was 
he was one of those people I describe in the mystery of the trapped light who lived kind of amphibiously between the spiritual world and the present world. And his wife, Catherine Bouch or Boucher, whatever way you want to pronounce it, she said that William was seldom with her, meaning she, he was in the spiritual world. Now, th there's one important point before uh, we go on in this. Uh, he believed, and one important idea that I would like to suggest about what, what he was doing was he was talking about a dimension which is around us. And this was a real dimension. And I believe that a lot of his work is trying to construct his Jerusalem, if you like, in an imaginal world which is shared, which is, if you like, in the ether or is in one of the dimensions that people like Bernard Carr talks about. He, he was actually talking about constructing something which is similar to a great mandala, which is a real, uh, a real building of the imaginal world in this space. So uh, when you look at his, when he's talking about building um, Golganuza was a, 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 a term he used, or, or building Jerusalem in the future. He's actually talking about constructing something in this space. So this is not a fanciful space. He believes that the imagination is our existence, that Jesus is the imagination, that the way I would, I would interpret it is it's like a figure eight, that our consciousness is inherently linked to the outwards. There's no real split between the internal and the outwards. And the cross in the eight or the figure of infinity is one that we can shift in a way. So what, what we're doing is existing when we embrace the imagination. And, and that was a crucial concept. So, so th this was a much deeper concept than just the idea that we're, we're seeing things around us. It was, he was trying to explain to us that there is another world there that we're capable of seeing once we cleanse the, do the doors of perception. Well, he actually developed an entire cosmology, I think it's fair to say. Yes, as well as being a mystagogue, he, or he sought to do it through his mythopoesis, the idea that an individual can create a myth. Now, this idea that an individual can create a mythic structure subsequently was employed by people like C.S. Lewis, the Inklings, uh, by Tolkien. So they're creating a whole new myth mythological structure that's not necessarily existing before. Of course, it will have the archetypal elements in it. So why was he doing that? He was doing that to a certain extent because uh, to give him freedom to do it anew. And he said that he wasn't taking any other systems because he believed that if you, you had to invent your own system. And he was capable of inventing his own system. So I believe that he was writing for the future, that he came to a conclusion that the political affiliations, the secret societies, the concentration of power, uh, you couldn't operate, you couldn't fix them. So I believe he was a prophet that constructed or, or predicted what was going to happen and tried to provide an imaginative uh, solution for the future. So to just to refer to his, a little bit to his cosmology, uh, which is important for me, or the elements that I would particularly pick out. Um, there was an idea of a kind of universal man or, or woman or person, uh, which often manifested in, in, in Albion, which is represented in the figure of Albion Rose, uh, which is one of his beautiful uh, drawings. And that that's consistent with the idea of kind of Vitruvian man or the figure that was used in magic and uh, uh, appears in Cornelius Agrippa and the other sense, but he breaks it out. He, he, he's not confining the figure to that mathematical context. He was dead against the idea of the rational, of ratio, of solely confining the individual to that. So his idea, uh, he wants to liberate the imagination, to liberate the individual. His cosmology is more like a description of the our internal psychology. I believe he was trying to map the imaginal world, as you, you often talk about. And what he, how he described it was that there was four basic figures. Uh, the, the, the most powerful figure, in a way, is Eurizen, or Eurizen. Um, I pronounce it Eurizen because it makes more sense, because it indicates the rational mind, the reasonable mind, referring to the 
the ratio, the Latin sense for, for reason, and also ratio in the mathematical sense, ratio. And ratio and compass dividers was important for a lot of the esoteric societies. The, this idea goes back to, for example, the Druids, the Druids in Stonehenge, the idea that we see uh, in Jerusalem, did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountains green? He's, he's referring to the legend, uh, which he would have believed, I think, that Jesus came to uh, Glastonbury with his uncle. Uh, and there, there are scholars that believe that that's plausible. It's not, it's not fanciful. So this was a connection between uh, Jerusalem and the Druid, Druidic connection. And there's a belief as well at that time that Pythagoras and that they learned their theories from the Druids. So this was what people believed in certain circles. But so he has your reason, and your reason is the figure that was projected on St. Paul's on the on his birthday in November 2019. About the about the time we were I was deciding to come over to see you in Albuquerque, they projected on his birthday a this figure, your reason, on the top of St. Paul's Cathedral. The problem is that your reason for him represents the satanic forces. So the choice of that is, is very, very interesting. It represents the domination of reason. And to many, in, in many senses, I believe it's a quite apt, unconscious or conscious idea that reason has taken over the, the religious sentiment in Europe and are committed to that. And that, that was a, a, a forerunner of the kind of scientocracy we have. Anyway, so the, we have Eurizen, and then that represents the the head, the brain. We also have a figure which represents the heart, Luva or Luva, and also the instincts, another figure uh, which represents the instincts and, and sensation, which is Tamas, a bit like the Thames. And then the other, the big figure is Ortona, and Ortona represents the imagination. So what we have is a sketch of the psyche for me, which represents the uh, the interaction between uh, reason, uh, uh, feelings of love and affection and a heart, uh, sensation, the senses, empiricism, etc., and the imagination. Now, his view was that reason, the nature of reason and the single-sightedness that we see in the pictures of Nebuchadnezzar, well, of Newton in particular, and the famous pictures of Newton, that when you have this mentality, if you only use that, then you begin to lose, uh, you be begin to lose contact with the other forces, and that reason would oust feelings, sentiment, sensation; it would dominate over them, and that the only force that could counteract that uh, was the imagination. So that the imagination was the dominant force for him. That was for me, imagination or uh, today we would describe it as consciousness or spiritual consciousness. So when he's talking about imagination, he's talking about spiritual consciousness, consciousness which is activated. He believes that you have to activate it. He believes that the uh, until it's activated, there hasn't been a creation, that it's an internal uh, idea. So these figures kind of fall and they begin to war with each other and then there has to be a reintegration. So this was what... This, this influenced William Butler Yeats very significantly, who in the 1890s worked with a man called Ellis to, uh, to unify his, uh, the poetry of Blake and bring it to the attention of the public. And that influenced people like uh, the poet uh, Kathleen Rain. And it's also very close to Jung's idea. The implications are, are very, very close. And the last point, he also had a, an idea of fourfold vision. He, and this describes as well a, a classic universal perennial mystical uh, idea of vision, that the lowest level of vision is single vision. It's what we see with the vegetable eye, as he called it. It's the basic, uh, it's the basic illusion we see of the world, and that was where that was where reason lived in many senses, and that was the satanic element. So above that was an element which was more interactive, more speculative more fantastical, where you're using your mind act actively. Uh, and that can be the domain of a lot of fantasy. There's a great connection between f uh, fantasy literature and Blake's, and in many sense, 
Blake is a forerunner of a lot of comics, of that idea of creating your own world, of heroes. Even his style is very uh, consistent with comics, and he would have influenced people like Alan Moore and that. Uh, and then we move up into a stage uh, of which he used a Hebrew word of Beulah, which it refers to a state where we go beyond contraries, because it was a very important idea, like in your love of the yin-yang symbol, that at a certain level there was no contraries, that and we needed countries at a lower lower level or oppositional forces in order to progress. And then you reach into a state which was before the eternal state, whereby there was no opposition. You began to see that these forces were actually not in opposition in the same way. And that was a pleasant state. And then the highest state was a state associated with Eden. It was an eternal state. It was kind of beyond time and space. It was totally peaceful. So, so that describes kind of the mystical, the mystical elevation in many senses. So that was important to him. And in, of course, the imagination would be associated with the higher, the higher forms. There is a famous line in his poetry. I probably don't have it exact. I think it goes something like, protect us from Newton's sleep. He, he depicts Isaac Newton as, as slumbering, not really awake to the world. Yes, and uh, my only slight disagreement with him on that is that he, uh, his other figure that he opposed, uh, John Locke, was a better example because uh, we, we have to remember that uh, Newton, you know, he's plenty of flaws, uh, but he was also described as the last of the magicians. So he was, he was very aware of some of these elements, but that was not known at the time. They had to hide it. But he, yeah, you're right, and that would... That would apply to the, the base level, the, the, the single vision, where you believe that the world is as you see it, where you're, you focus purely on empiricism, on measurement, on quantification, on uh, quantity. And you believe that by measuring things, you understand it all. So for me, it's a really accurate anticipation of the problem that we have today, of the domination of scientism, of the empire of scientism. I believe, in my terms, I would describe him as the great prophet of the empire of scientism. He was really anti-imperial. He was really anti-big institutions. He was in favor of the person, of the individual. He believed that every individual had to be their own prophet. The individual had to engage in those processes. And Newton represented for him, and with his dividers, he represented this idea of not only dividing things, of splitting things down, uh, but also of focusing on the rational. And he believed that when you did that to an exclusive degree, you began to not see the other things in the world. And he understood better than anybody else the consequences of this thing that was the basis of the Industrial Revolution, of the uh, Enlightenment. He began to see that this was a deadly force, and he began to see it in a historical continuity. And he, he saw it uh, in ways that he believed had to be corrected it had to be corrected and could only be corrected by engaging with the imaginal world. So a lot of people say, well, Blake was a radical this and he was a radical that, but he wasn't in many senses. He, under, he didn't engage and he didn't give his life to, to, to fight for the revolution because he realized he saw what happened in, 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 uh, in France. He was certainly in favor of that. He was in favor of the uh, revolution in the United States, as, as were, were conservative figures at the time, for example, like Edmund Burke from Dublin, uh, was in favor of greater flexibility in relation to, to America. But subsequently, Blake would have been, uh, would have been against them. He, he, Blake defined himself by taking a contrary position. So he takes there's a thesis and he takes the antithesis and he seeks to get a, a synthesis. So he would have opposed then William or Edmund Burke's uh, conservatism, as he saw it, about the French Revolution and his essay on reflect, or reflections on the revolution in, in France. He opposed Sir Joshua Reynolds when he w went to the, the Royal Academy to learn art. He hated this, uh, this idea that the Royal Art Academy was going to be uh, an institution, a kind of propagandist institution for a certain belief system in the empire. He opposed Swedenborg, of course, uh, when he wrote The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. It's essentially an opposition to Swedenborg. And he believed that in that opposition, 
he was going to come to a higher a higher viewpoint. And also Milton as well. People see it as a great a celebration of Milton, but it was really a, a great criticism. And by engaging with Milton, he was trying to have a synthesis with himself, literally, uh, uh, at a higher level. Well, in, in other words, Milton and Swedenborg, when they write about heaven and hell, they see them as two very distinct uh, domains in opposition to each other. And Blake, when he talks about the marriage of heaven and hell, is seeing things as a unity. Yes. He began to, uh, in 1789, a lot of things happened between 78, his, his brother died, and then his brother gave him the technique of uh, is printing the, the, the innovation, and then he was associated for a short time with the New Jerusalem Church, which was the church, which was the Swedenborgian Church, and they went for a week to an initial meeting, him and his wife, but then he turned against it, and there's a number of reasons why he may have turned against it. Uh, one, he began to see that Swedenborg was, in his view, repeating what uh, Jacob Burma and Paracelsus had said. So he said that these guys had said it better uh, in relation to describing the imaginal world and, and, and all the things that he was in favor of. I also think that he probably got wind of, of accusations or arguments that Swedenborg was engaged in a lot of secret activity. And there's a lot of scholarship on that. People have different views. But there's no doubt that in the, from the Swedish Freemason position or, or history, which was very strong or activity um, that Swedenborg was involved in or other societies across Europe, that people would have realized that Swedenborg had connections into different apparatus. And he didn't like that. He didn't believe in, he didn't like that secrecy. So one, one reason for me, he didn't like open institutions that were trying to dominate people. The, the, the priests in, in their gowns, in their black gowns, doing their, their rounds and binding with briars, the joys and desires. He didn't like this repressive repression of sexuality, repression of impulse. Uh, he didn't believe in, in, in the, that legalistic approach to, to, to the individual spiritual development. And he didn't believe in the secret societies in the same way. So a lot of people w might disagree with that. He was certainly around a lot of people, around a lot of Masons. And he would have picked up a lot of their esoteric ideas. But I believe he was standing for the individual person. And he was standing for the idea that only the individual person can bring forward the change. And although people will say he was a radical activist in this sense, and he was certainly around the circle with Mary Wollstonecraft, and he illustrated some of uh, a child's book for her, and he, he was around uh, Tom Paine, and his publisher, Johnson, uh, was very, very active, a Unitarian, was very, very active in promoting uh, revolutionary literature. Uh, but I believe that he came to the conclusion that society couldn't develop unless the individual went on that journey of spiritual evolution, and absent that, Nothing, nothing could work in the long term. So he had, he had a very, very clear view on, uh, of the significance of spiritual evolution. I know there are some scholars who think of William Blake and Swedenborg, actually, as being within the Gnostic tradition. And in, in that, as I understand it, and I might be misinterpreting that this figure of Urizen or Urizen uh, is viewed as a false god who seems to have control over the physical plane, very much akin to the archons of Gnosticism. Yes, there, there are, there's a lot of literature recently in particular that suggests that he fits in very easily into that Gnostic tradition. Um, now, there's a lot of good evidence that can back that up. Uh, so it depends on what your definition of Gnosticism is. Recently, the idea of Gnosticism has been broadened to describe any form of individual spiritual uh, growth. And, and, and for me, that's a very wide term. And it doesn't refer directly to the spe specificity of the Gnostic tradition. Of course, some of the great Gnostic texts were only discovered afterwards, after uh, Blake's life. But there was knowledge of these issues 
uh, in London, certainly. So they knew what Gnosticism uh, was. Uh, and that is a, very, is a quite specific idea. But um, So in the general sense, you could say he's Gnostic. In a specific sense, the link with that tradition, I think, is, 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 is quite weak. And, and it's, it doesn't, in my view, do justice to the extent and the ambition of, of, of his idea. Because he's not saying that your reason is, is a false god. What he's saying is that we are psychically creating a false god. So as it was projected on St. Paul's, to take a good interpretation of it, he was, what he's saying is that these figures that are made by our poetic genius... The, the most important work he wrote, in my view, to explain his philosophy, which is not a poetic exploration, which doesn't use other characters, was the very first uh, two works he did in 1788, and they were the simplest. So they're only epigrams, and he starts off with simple plates without color, which which explain his philosophy. They, they are they are just like that. They're not adorned like the great text, and. What's interesting for me is this is really the start of a great spiritual journey. And it's funny that he, he writes in epigrams. And the epigrams is a characteristic of a lot of mystical literature. So he starts off uh, explaining what he believes in. And he explains in, in, in one of the first epigrams that experiment has come to be the essence of knowledge. But experiment must, um, is, is subsidiary to experience. So for me, he's, he's describing what became phenomenology afterwards. He says that he, he's referring to empiricism. He doesn't use that term, but he said that they believe that knowledge is just what comes to the senses, but perception is bigger than the senses, and therefore it can't be confined to that. So he, he also objects, objects to empiricism in, in that sense, uh, or elements of it. And he said that uh, the Inside every individual is their poetic genius. Now, I think that's consistent with the imagination that he later calls. So we all have this poetic genius, which in every culture they either call an angel, a spirit, or a demon, or daemon, uh, perhaps people would prefer. Uh, so the poetic genius is this spirit inside us, and it's manifested in different cultures, but all religions are the same, he said. It's just different manifestations of the poetic genius. So uh, he's a perennialist in that sense. So what he's saying about your reason, he said, is that the God that happened in this expression, the Jehovah or whatever you want to call it, that, that emerged at a certain time was a projection of us, of an overly rational figure. And they projected it onto the heavens, like they did on St. Paul's Cathedral. They projected it, but it's not there. So he's not claiming that it's there. He's, he's claiming, as far as I can see, that this was the tension, that psychic tension we talked about in, in the forces, the four zoas of uh, Urizen and Ortona and the others. Uh, it's that coming to the fore. And when that legal, legalism comes to the fore, because it's unduly focused on rules and regulations, well, then it becomes a false representation of God. So he's not actually saying what the Gnostics are saying, that there was a false creator God in the same way. So there's a subtle distinction. I can see where one can make the argument either way. But I, I, I think his argument is more complex and superior because he doesn't have to refer to any of the specific traditions because the, the Gnostic traditions also can be just as legalistic, just as literalistic. This ha happened on a Yalabo and this happened, and they can become very, uh, just a different version of the same story. And also the final point is that in a lot of Gnostic traditions, not necessarily, but there is a trend in the Gnostic traditions to reject the body, to regard the body as the part of the material world, corrupt. Uh, and for me, Blake doesn't have that. Blake celebrates the body. He celebrates eroticism. He celebrates uh, sexuality uh, in, in many sense. He, he cel celebrates the physical. Um, he says in one of his poems, well, although it's the devil saying it, that the body and soul can't be separated, but to a certain extent he believed that. And that was also consistent with some of the Moravian uh, influences. They didn't have a, a downer on the body in that sense. So 
Uh, yes, in some sense, he's Gnostic. I don't think he's Gnostic. I think he, he, he's more revolutionary than that. I think he, he had a greater sense of consciousness. And you, you want to be looking at someone like Bernard Carr, actually, and his, his emerging theories are more consistent by looking at the world in a, a hyperspace or, or, or go back to Benjamin Blood and his idea in the 1870s of the pluriverse. So he, he had that. Uh, and um, the argument is there. I have respect for the argument, but I, I, I would subtly distinguish it. Well, I guess one has to also look at William Blake in the context of the enormous social changes. He lived during the early phases of the Industrial Revolution. Newtonian thought was really quite dominant in his era. And so he was uh, undoubtedly reacting against that. People forget about the poor English people. Uh, the, the English people, the average person in England, uh, now they're, they're, people are claiming that they were all benefiting from the slave trade and from colonialism. Most people suffered first. The ordinary people uh, suffered at the hands of all the things that happened. As, as, as I suppose people like Marx and others identified, but any historian would identify with the Industrial Revolution. It was a horrific time for a, a lot of people, for the people at the bottom, bottom rung. And every experiment that was done by the empire abroad was kind of done to the people first uh, in Britain. So uh, walk, uh, London, of course, as he describes in the poem London, uh, or just around him, was full of prostitution. It was full of uh, girls worked in factories from the time there were, there, there were, there were children, um, and, and, and even at that time. He, of course, t takes the figure of the chimney sweep, we're talking about kids that were sold by the parents or taken by the parents. I mean, force was used in a lot of these contexts as the army would have been press ganged. A lot of people would find themselves press ganged and, 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 and brought over to fight in wars. The Duke of Wellington, of course, who defeats Napoleon, was born in Dublin. And a big percentage of the army were, were Irish. And some of them would have been brought into that context. But we're talking about London filled with... Uh, prostitution, child prostitution, s effective slavery. Um, Blake gets very annoyed when he sees a child, a boy, hobbling on his feet, effectively uh, hobbled, uh, joined together by wood outside, and he goes out. He, he could get very irate, and he was a very strong man, uh, although he wasn't very big. He was a very strong uh, man, and any time he saw injustice like that, he would intervene. He saw a man beating a woman. He, 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 he could get uh, violent in defense of someone who was weaker than him. So you're talking about kids from the age of four or whatever who were taken to be uh, to, to go up the chimneys of the rich, male and female. Uh, the, I mean, the rich. Um, and these kids wouldn't grow up. They would be stunted in their growth. They'd get horrific cancers. Uh, they uh, only washed one day a week. It was a horrific, horrific symbol of the times. And so when we're talking about imperialism, the idea that everyone in Britain was benefiting from this imperialism is a mistake. And in particular, the English people suffered an awful lot. And that, that's kind of been forgotten about uh, in, in the time. And it's horrific what he saw around him. Um, and he had enormous... Um, compassion and sympathy which is, is an essential part and he believed i think correctly that a lot of the institutions including the church were complicit in these in these things they were complicit in the structures that led to it and i, I, I think that that's a fair argument and he, he believed that imagination or spiritual consciousness with um, jesus being the imagination was a necessary force to unleash in order for people to be able to empathize, to, to see others. He didn't think that would be solved by that top down, by engaging in all that secrecy and behind cloak and dagger stuff. So uh, it was a brutal time. It was a brutal time for, for, for most people that weren't in, in, in the structures. And uh, for women, Mary Wollstonecraft was writing about the, the rights of women at that time. Thomas Paine was talking about not just in the United States, but freedom elsewhere. So there was a number of different forces and a number of different ideas. And William Godwin was another figure he would have come across, the, the, the husband of 
Wollstonecraft and, and the father of Mary Shelley. So they were all seeking to find different ways to, 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 to deal with what was a horrific advent of the industrial society and the dark satanic mills that he talks about. Because British Britain was a colonial power at this time, ironically, that's one of the reasons that people like Blake were exposed to uh, the great philosophies of India. Uh, yes, there, there is that point. Um, there is the trading. Uh, there is always these paradox. And they go back to the point you made about, uh, and perhaps I didn't finish it off, about the marriage of heaven and hell. He didn't believe that Swedenborg was right, that there was this kind of pure area on its own. He believed that this was constant, that heaven and hell exists now. And I mean, in many senses, he was looking out his window at hell in, in, in many senses. So he believed that there were constant constant states in a way that consistent with a, a kind of eternal struggle and that um, we shouldn't think of it in terms as the priests were trying to, to sell us in, in, in his idea. So we had to engage with these processes and also what would seem to be hell may be heaven and what would seem to be heaven could be hell. It, it, it's a, there's a paradox in it because if you focused on legalism, on reason, on rules and legislation and regulation, then you would forget the spirit, the imagination. You would forget those basic things of compassion and empathy, and they were stronger. So he realized that uh, the madness was really in society, that the schizophrenia was in society, as Ian Sinclair correctly, I think, identifies. The society was mad. The society was, that was the one that was fearing conspiracies all the time, because it was engaged in conspiracies itself. That was the one with all the secret societies, with all its kind of shadows and darknesses there. So he believed that that great, that great force had to be opposed on an individual level and that we had to, in, in some ways, divorce ourselves. And he, he thought it was a waste of time to get involved in politics uh, uh, for that reason. So uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't convinced that this heaven and hell was as it was. He did, he did believe in good and evil, and he did believe in the person, and he did believe he was a great advocate of childhood and proper childhood, and he didn't really go to school. And he, he went to drawing school uh, at, at the age of 10, for example, and he believed childhood was very important, and he believed that he escaped a lot by not going to, to school, and, he, and um, he's, he was right on that, unfortunately. And he probably reflects views that Steiner would have in a contemporary sense. But, um, yeah, so, so, so in that sense, uh, the heaven and hell were realities that anyone can fall into at particular times, and it's not something that's postponed uh, till we die. I have heard... James, from some of our viewers and from other people, I'm sure it's a quote you're familiar with, the idea that when you live in a, a society that is insane, to be a sane person in that society is sick. Well, that's right. I mean, the, the thing that I don't like about, there's a, no, there's a lot of great books written about Blake. I was reading a, a good one in, in Swedish recently by Malberg that a number of people referred me to so you can get a whole range of different views and uh, I'm, I'm not talking about Malberg but talking about some more of the recent biographies they talk about this illness that that, that Blake has and I, I think that if we do correct ourselves which we will over the long period of time that they will look back at some of these these writers and uh, and, and, and criticize them for for making the judgment now if you look at someone like uh, Ian McGilchrist, I mean, he's in a position to make a, a, a professional judgment as far as I can understand. Um, I think his background uh, would enable him to do so, or a better judgment. So, when people have no experience in psychology, no qualifications, well, how can they come to, you know, they can say such and such said, but I mean, for other people to come to a conclusion about his mental state, it, it sounds absurd to me. Uh, and, ser and then when you look at the evidence, of people around him, they said he wasn't uh, insane. Some people said he was a lunatic, but if you produced this great art, you would be described as a lunatic. Remember, he, he produced drawings such as the Red Dragon, 
which was used in the films about Hannibal Lecter and, and uh, in, in horror film and in those kind of films recently. So he, his images still work today and still have potency. So we can understand that people, uh, people would uh, react to it. But there's no doubt that when we begin to pathologize people who have great vision, there's something wrong. And also, there's another point, Jeff, which is very, very important. There's a lot of fantasy writers these days. And you look at them and you, you may imagine that they are understanding spiritual realities. Where, in my view, they're only at the second level of vision in Blake's terms. Because they don't go above. If you probe it a bit deeper... They don't believe in mysticism, they don't believe in spiritual activity, and they don't even believe in paranormal psychology uh, or, or possibilities. Some of them, if you, if, if you look at what they say, they're very, very skeptical and they're very, very materialist. So you have to be careful uh, in, in this context that some of the people that begin to make these judgments are coming from essentially a materialist background that is that employs fantasy but doesn't it doesn't apply spiritual insight. It's a lower level activity, and and it's very very easy to confuse the two. Uh, but but look at that, and look at what the people are saying when you're reading your fantasy novels and you think you're engaging in some great exploration of the spirit. Look and see what the people are saying, and see does it actually does it mean something else? Is this merely an engagement with sensation, with storytelling, or is it of a higher type? It's an interesting question. I think obviously there's a difference with talking about C.S. Lewis or Tolkien, but it's an interesting conundrum. And certainly, I don't think the man was mad. I think what the man was was a great prophet and a great visionary. They said, of course, they well they said that Ginsberg was mad, and his mother had a lobotomy. Uh, God love her, but um, so we all that's. We know there's a process, there's a time in the United States when they're using lobotomy very, very, or too easily, very, very easily. So this type of medical intervention is, is the madness, or can be the madness. Remember as well how Mary Wollstonecraft dies in, uh, because of the, the medical profession. We have to be very, very careful that this idea that you have the answers, that it's uh, about rationality, it's about the existing practice, it's about the way you see it, it's about calculation, uh, and that that dominates over other factors. It's a very, very dangerous view. And I, I, I think that more and more in the future, they will look back and say that this period for a few hundred years from the scientific revolution, in particular from Francis Bacon, uh, true Locke, true the Enlightenment, uh, elements of Descartes as it manifests in a contemporary context, this was a madness. This was madness in any meaningful idea of the term. This excessive focus on materialism was insane in any context. And so the people that begin to look at visionaries who worked nearly all his life, who produced all his life, who, who spent 16 years working on Milton, who produced the great Songs of Innocence, Songs of Experience, Marriage of Heaven and Hell, Book of Eurism, Book, Book of uh, Laws, uh, and all the other work, all, all the paintings, who produced a philosophy that stands the test of time, who produced uh, an explanation of psychology, the psyche, of the mystical journey, who tried to assimilate a number of different traditions, uh, who, tr who predicted what was going to happen in Western society and why it was going to probably destroy itself, in, in, in my view, and also suggested a solution, and I suggested a solution that was universal, that recognized the poetic genius of all cultures, that expressed the highest and noblest of values. He's the madman. Well, there's something seriously wrong with that judgment. And for people to be doing that without any uh, sound evidence, which sometimes misusing the historical record, misinterpreting it, sometimes using flimsy evidence, and without any experience, without any sound basis to do so, uh, well, 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 I, I think that that comes in the in the domain of, uh, of of a slight madness as well. Well, when I look at Blake's life, his social critique, his artwork, his poetry, his philosophy, I can't help but think that you yourself have taken great inspiration from him. I I, I do. Um, 
but it goes in circles. Blake's idea, I think, was like in his pitched up Jacob's ladder that life is a spiral of development, and we go around a, a, a central point. Maybe the the logic is in the center of it, and we go through contrary positions on the way, and, and we come back to it. So I found Blake useful. I remember seeing him maybe uh, was it forty years ago, whatever, a long time ago in London, seeing the pictures. Uh, it, it had a collection of the Tate at the time. I had read his poetry. I looked at his stuff. I keep coming back to it at different levels, and I keep finding something different. And I keep uh, unraveling it because it's not easy. That, that I have to say that if you come and say, "Okay, I'm going to read Blake today. I'm going to read Jerusalem," you, you'll be struggling because it's very, very difficult. You need a key, and you need to approach it in a different way. Some great texts are have an energy in themselves, and the, the pictures can work as well. You need some key. It's difficult. So I come back to him at various stages, but uh, increasingly, when I began to look at the mystical stuff, I felt very close to him. And uh, that was why, as well, Yeats felt very close to him, or, or Kathleen Rain, or any any of them feel close to him, because they know that he's engaged in a truthful exploration, that he hated hypocrisy, he hated Kant, he hated not Kant, the philosopher, <laughs> the, he, he hated hypocritical language, he hated people being two-faced, he hated people telling lies, he was outspoken. Uh, he, he couldn't. He couldn't not speak his mind. He was. He was also remember charged. They say also he's a very anxious man. Well, the man was charged for sedition, which could have led to the death penalty. Uh, he was also diddled out of money at various stages. Uh, he was also arrested when he was out drawing one day as a French spy. So they say he was kind of paranoid. Well, there seemed like there was good, good reason to be a bit concerned as a normal citizen, you know. And then there was all kinds of strange things going on uh, in London at the time. Um, you might, I mean, the, the best explanation of some of his moods sometimes might be the fact, if you look at the, the idea of mad as a hatter, the idea that we know the hatters were poisoned by mercury and things. So if he's working, his father was a hosier, and he's working in, in a small, small context, he lived in places around London, but the last place he lived in, and Fountain Court, which is where the Savoy Hotel is, and off the Strand, he, he, there's only two rooms, and, and, and at various stages he would have had a lot of materials there. And you're talking about he used, for example, a lot of glues, you know, as you would in distemper, and other substances. There's every possibility uh, that that contributed a bit towards his illness. Later, later on, he began to have uh, problems, physical problems. Uh, and when you're around these chemicals, I'm not saying they're the cause of visionary experience. I'm saying they can affect elements of, of your perception uh, at all. I'm not saying that because I'm not looking for a pathological explanation, but they would be better than some of the, 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 the things they look at. But his, he, he, he produced all his work. He was married to his wife for 44 years. He was producing up until his deathbed top quality work. You can't do that in that way, with that technical way, and develop great technique, innovation, uh, and writing, which stands the test of time, uh, being crazy in that sense. Well, I'm just delighted to have had this conversation with you, James. William Blake has been a big inspiration to me for a very long time, and I'm so glad to be able to share your passion for him and his work and uh, to see how it resonates with your own work. I think our viewers uh, also appreciate it very much. And so, of course, I'm looking forward to many more conversations with you in, in the future as well, James. Thanks very much, Jeff. It's always a pleasure. And I'd recommend to anybody to have a look at his work. You don't have to, to, to approach it with a very narrow mind. Just Just look at what's there and distinguish between what he said represented his own views and understand that some of the things he's saying that people say he said is not what he said, it's artistic development for a particular purpose and give him a chance and you may find that the power of the individual speaks to you today and says something that's relevant uh, to your life. Well, James, thank you so much for being with me today and for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.